try and focus on what you like. Like, why are you attracted to this? Do you like more engineering? Do you like more of the scientific side? Do you like more of the ops side? Like, focus on that first because that's the most important thing. And then once you've worked that out, just start comparing your skills with job titles. And do you fit more at the moment on the development side or the analyst side? That will be your path in. And you know, even if you start as an analyst or a data engineer or a developer or whatever, you don't have to stay in those roles. Jody, welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. We were just catching up on some summer plans and trips, and I appreciate you making the time for this because I know you're getting ready to take a nice holiday here in a few days. So where are you headed to? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm finally taking a holiday. I actually haven't taken a holiday since I started my job at JetBrains. Um, so I'll be flying to Reykjavik next Monday and then one week in Iceland and then going to northern France, so Normandy and Brittany. That sounds amazing. So I, I noticed that you've spent you know time as a data scientist at multiple companies. I think the the downside of when you switch companies, at least here in America, maybe it's different in Europe, but you have to like build up that vacation again. Is that a similar process in Europe? I'm always like, I don't want to switch companies because now I have to build it up again. <laughs> we luckily don't have that. Um, so we have a minimum 20 days leave here in Germany. But uh, the problem is, of course, you don't want to take leave, you know, immediately, um, especially because you're just generally so busy. So I think it's it's really the first chance I've had to just sit down and catch my breath since I started and very overdue, let's put it that way. Yes, I, I always feel like vacations and holidays are overdue and completely understand it. Just It's kind of like what we have here in the US too, some of that unlimited PTO. It's like, yes, it's unlimited, but you're like, there's all these, I'm not going to take it right away. I want to come in and build that trust. So um, completely understand and I'm excited for you to be able to have that time away next week. Today, I really want to dive into the role of a data scientist and how it's evolved over the past 10 years because you've had this amazing experience of working in multiple data science roles for multiple companies. Um, currently, you are a data science developer advocate at JetBrains. And, you know, prior to getting into the realm of data science, um, got your PhD and worked as a postdoc researcher at the University of Melbourne. So, you know, I probably on paper, people look at it, it's like, oh, you're a very traditional data scientist, right? You have a PhD and you've done lots of different roles. Um, one would love to hear, do you feel like you're a traditional data scientist? <laughs> and two, you know, what's been your experience? Uh, in the data science roles, really getting into it in the early days, right? 2013, 2014, to now we're at 10 years later and, and how has that changed? Yeah. So I guess in, in many ways, my path is quite traditional. Like, like you said, getting it into the early days, I think you, you saw this as well. Everyone had a PhD because it was sort of like, oh, a bunch of academics, like I don't want to be an academic anymore. And all of a sudden I can get this nice job in tech, which allows me to do the same thing, but, you know, have a lot more freedom. So I think in that sense, yes, I'm quite traditional. I think also what I've realized is the role has changed over time. I think as the size of data has grown, the size of models that are actually being used in production is growing. And I think maybe the sophistication of data science use cases has grown as it's become much more mature and embedded in, in companies. So 
I think what I've seen is the field has sort of started to split a bit. And this is where ML engineering came in. Um, and also where now you have ML ops. I'm not really sure where the line is between ML engineering and ML ops, if I'm being perfectly honest. I don't know if anyone knows. Um, but the way I sort of see things now is you have your data scientists, more like me, and this is the, the realm I'm happy in, which is more about research, prototyping. Um, you know, we do have some engineering skills, but we recognize that engineering is its own specialization and maybe we don't have the desire to learn those skills. And then you have uh, people coming in from maybe more of an engineering background and they have those strengths. So they are better able to sort of support models as they go into production, deal with, you know, how do you um, deal with, say, latency issues or load issues? Um, how do you get models to make uh, really efficient inference when they're like, maybe they're massive and you don't want to pay a lot of money for GPUs? So, yeah, I, I think definitely I'm seeing the field change. And I think I found my little corner. I wonder how long that corner is going to stick around as the field gets more engineering oriented maybe, but I'd like to think that there's always going to be a role for people with that sort of scientific perspective and interest. Yeah, I've noticed similar trends as well. You know, when data science first came out, you may remember it was like they were these unicorns, right? It was often referred to as unicorns. And mm -hmm. I understand why they were referred to as unicorns is because today you look at like the data science, what I call like job family. And we've created essentially like five different roles based off of what used to be the one data science role, right? So you have data engineering, yes. we've gotten more um, rigor in what an actual data analyst does versus a data scientist. We now have ML engineers and ML ops people, right? And then let alone the whole role of the chief data officer. I mean, when I was a data scientist, there were mm. not chief data officers. It was just like, there's these random unicorns, right? I'm using air quotes for those who are listening <laughs> in because I'm like, I never thought of myself as a unicorn, um, which was a no. lot of pressure to put on someone, I think, in the early days of like, mm -hmm. hey, you're going to do all these things and we don't know how it works, but it's just going to be magic. <laughs> um yeah, so yeah, now yeah. it's it's I think there's like a big benefit of like we've realized, oh, it's multiple job statements, let alone even we didn't even talk about the data product manager that is evolving in this mm -hmm. space as well. But I so I see it two ways. One, in some ways, it's easier for data scientists because you have a more specific defined role, which is great. But I also feel like it's a little bit harder mm. be, to get into the role because you don't know if you're wanting to get in, I see so many people who are like, I want to be a data scientist, but then they find out, actually, no, I really actually want to be a data engineer or a data product manager. And I mm. didn't realize it split into all these different functions. Do you see similar for those yep. like trying to get into the role, like not knowing the difference between all of the different data science family jobs? Yeah, it's actually, it's really interesting that you bring that up. So I was at EuroPython a couple of weeks ago and I had the opportunity to give a session with a few other data scientists about, you know, it, like it was just a Q&A session for people who were beginning in the field. And I had a number of people come up to me afterwards to ask specific advice for their background on how to get in. And the backgrounds were super diverse. So I had people who were coming in from you know, electrical engineering backgrounds. I had people coming in from uh, biology. I had people coming in from a development perspective. So obviously the advice I gave to all of them was totally different, playing to their strengths and their interests. Um, 
because I see for them there was a lot of confusion. Like all of them were asking, how do I become a data scientist? Whereas for some of them, I'm like, maybe what you want to be is an ML engineer or a data engineer or a data analyst. Um, the path in is actually going to be completely different, not just based on your skills, but what you want to do. No, I completely agree. And I think, you know, there's, it's great. It's standardized for those who have been in the industry. But I think if you're new coming into the industry, data science is still the main term that you relate to and get in. And then it's like, you find out what it is and you get in and you realize there's like a whole nother world that that exists. But I think that's one of the pros of Mm -hmm. being in the space as well is just the long-term career movement that you have. I know, you know, for me personally, I started as like a research analyst and then I was an analytics engineer and then I was a data scientist, a lead data scientist, and then was an AI strategist. And so it's great that you can easily expand to the different jobs family as well once you get it. Yeah, I remember actually having a bit of fear. Um, We were talking a little bit about hype and I think we're going to come back to that topic um, before we started recording. Um, I remember actually having a fear probably in around 2017, 18, that they're like, you know, the unicorn thing was dying. There was all these think pieces coming out saying, oh, data science is dead, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, like, have I like gone from academia into another career that's now going to die? I think quite the opposite has happened. I think it's become like a, a much more mature industry, which has staying power. Um, I think in the early days, people were just hiring, like you said, these unicorns and just being like, oh, but I'm going to get rich if I hire this data scientist. And um, I remember talking to friends who got hired at places that just didn't even have data that was in any state to work with. And you're like, I don't think you understood this role at all. Um, yeah. So I think really the, the field has good longevity. It's just become confusing like software engineering is now. Yes, it very much is. So the line between software engineering and data engineering is a little bit blurred as well, or ML ops. Um, I loved your comment too about like data scientists coming in and not having any data. I, I've interviewed for roles before and I was like, okay, you know, let me see you, your data architecture. And they're like, oh, we're still working on it and we haven't built it. And I'm like, okay, well, like don't, don't call me until like six months to a year, right? Because like there's no reason for me to even come in. Like let me save you money and save my frustration. If you don't even have like the architecture and framework put in place, like put your resources into that right now, not into getting a data scientist. Exactly. Because I'm just going to be settling, twiddling my thumbs and maybe writing research proposals until you can exactly, work that problem exactly. out. Exactly, yes. I do want to circle back to a comment you made about how data science is potentially moving more towards engineering. And, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that or kind of where you see the future of it going, um, just given all the new advancements and tools and capabilities that we have today. Yeah. So I think it's not necessarily that I think the people in my kind of interest area or my skills area will get phased out. It's more that I think, firstly, I think because it's the shiny new thing, it's the thing that's attracting most attention. So like, I remember it was ML engineering probably a year or two ago. Now it's ML ops. And there's this real tendency for people to hyperfixate on roles and be like, oh, this is, this is the essential role. We're all part of a team. Um, the way I think I see things going is, okay, you have different types of problems and different types of businesses, you know, 
different applications of data science in domain in in different domains and different areas. So I think there's always going to be, you know, people who can do everything, but they're probably going to be at a tiny startup which doesn't have very complicated data. And as that company grows, like organically those teams are going to split off and you're going to start having specializations. I think the bulk of the work in the field is probably going to be classic machine learning um, and therefore probably a big part of the engineering will probably still fall on data engineers and traditional software engineers because the deployment pipelines are honestly not that complicated. You can get away with fairly simple models. And then you've got this emerging area and like we're seeing this with uh, actual kind of logistical problems with using large language models and, and other such huge complicated neural nets where you really do need specialist knowledge on not only say distillation of gigantic models so that they're more efficient. Um, for those of people in the audience who don't know what distillation is, it's basically taking neural nets and making them smaller, but retaining most of the performance. So this is a trend that you see with all kind of large models um, and machine learning engineers specialize in doing this. And then of course, you know, being able to efficiently do inference from large language models. This is going to be a specialization within MLOps and other such like huge models. So I don't think it's going to be a big part of the field if I'm being perfectly, perfectly honest. Like I think there's a lot of interest in these models because they're super cool, but I don't think the applications are as big as people think they are. But for those companies that need it, they're going to need specialists. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, where do you think things are going to go? You've probably seen things like within ChatGPT, they have code interpreter and, you know, you can feed it, throw in a data set and it will spit out, you know, graphs and some recommendations and even build kind of a baseline model. You know, we see this with other tools besides just like ChatGPT and the plugins that happen with like ThoughtSpot and more of this prompting to answers. Do you think that's going to change the role of the data scientist as well? I don't think the data scientist, honestly, because, okay, maybe I'm being a little bold in this I prediction. I love bold prediction. I have this gut go feeling. I'm, I'm going to go with it. Maybe I'll be wrong. I'll, be, I'll eat humble pie if that's the case. But um, I have a feeling that it's going to take a long time for these models to be able to replace sort of fine-grained data preparation. So by this, I'm not talking about like simple ETLs where you have like a very clean data set and you're just doing transformation. That is trivial. And I think, you know, large language models probably can already do this. But I'm talking about things like being able to spot outliers and then make a decision, a very eh, domain specific decision about whether to get rid of them or not. Things like bias, all this sort of stuff. You can't you can't get rid of this work. Like it, it is so fundamental to building good like machine learning and analytics pipelines as well. Um, really, I think where this sort of automated analysis is going to be really helpful and I'm already seeing it being used is, okay, say you have people in business who have no SQL skills, no coding skills, maybe not even really any data skills, but they have domain knowledge. If they have clean data sets that they can use, this is going to be very helpful for them for being able to do ad hoc queries. Yeah, I, I think you're 
I'll, I'll double down on your prediction in that regard. Yes. <laughs> so then we can at least, if we have to eat some humble pie, we can at least eat humble pie together, right? Like that's the we whole goal it. of yes. why you want people backing you is like, well, if we're wrong, we're wrong together and, and we'll eat that humble pie together. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. And the other side of things I think that's going to still be very important, and you highlighted this a little bit at the beginning, is that need to be able to tell a story, right? So it's like you still either have the need of the hard engineering skills and understanding the nuances of the data and the mm. pipelines and what you're bringing into that model, because we know that's everything that goes, you know, like your model is only as good as the data that you put into it. But while some of these models can output results or create a graph, I still feel there's that missing component of like the translator in between what was output and mm -hmm. how do we start to really implement that into the business. And so like if I'm somebody coming into the field, it they kind of feel like they're on two opposite ends of the spectrum, which is I really want to narrow in on my engineering skills, but I also want to really mm -hmm. strengthen like my communication and my business application skills. Because yes, we have these tools, but especially when we start to get into like AI application, you know, that is where like the heart of everything lies, right? That's where the project fails or succeeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um this is the thing too, like data data is not an objective thing. You still need to like this is this is the thing about interpretation. Like you need to be able to understand what was being measured in order to really interpret it properly. And okay, in some domains it's gonna be way more straightforward than others. Like revenue is probably well, maybe not, but revenue may be a very straightforward metric, but if you're talking about things like behavior, that's where it starts. Yeah, we're both from a psychology background. So it's, it's really difficult to measure it and you make a lot of assumptions. I, yeah, I want to get more into behavior in a little bit. Um, but you had mentioned bias mm. and bias in models. And one of the things I know that, um, well, actually here in the United States, uh, New York passed a law, I think it was about two years ago, about removing um these algorithms from being able to filter through uh, resumes and screen people out. And not that they can't mm. use them, it's just that there's more restrictions because they noticed there was a lot of bias in them. What I found really interesting about this was that they passed the law two years ago and it took them two years to be able to figure out, like, how do we even regulate this, right? So, you know, I think that's oh, no. one of the struggles we have with like bias and algorithms. People are like, hey, we want to be able to regulate this, but people are still wondering. We don't even know, you know, we can pass a law, but then when it goes to regulation, it's going to take a lot longer. So you're somebody who's had experience as a hiring manager. Like, what did you learn? Not necessarily from like using models from it, but what did you learn just about bias in hiring in general, right? Because I think there's been a lot of bias in hiring, even before we use machine learning models, probably more, I don't know. So what's your experience been like? And how do we work to remove some of the bias? Yeah, so I think a lot of the discussion around bias in hiring really puts a lot of the responsibility on the minority groups to just ignore it, you know, just like, go into this this area where you maybe don't feel particularly welcome 
just fight against your internalized like thoughts about, you know, how you should behave. And okay, some of this is useful. So there's that very kind of well-known McKenzie, um, uh, what, what would you call it? Like a factoid or it's not a fact, it's based on research. Um, but yeah, this, this finding that women tend to apply for jobs when they meet 100% of the criteria and men apply when they meet 60. Okay. That actually has helped me in my life because I'm like, okay, you know, I, I just apply for jobs even when I don't think I'm qualified and well and behold I've gotten quite a few of them but the other part comes I think like a big part of it comes from the side of the hiring manager and the company and this is also something I noticed from personal experience so I would say again as a woman in tech coming from a very um female dominated academic area it was it was a bit of a shock um what I've found is a lot of people like to do quite an adversarial interviewing kind of style. And look, I don't know if it's, I don't have hard evidence that this is something that's biased towards men. I've only ever had men interview me in this way, um, but it does tend to be very intimidating. Um, I feel very uncomfortable. I really don't feel welcome in an interview where some, it feels like someone's trying to test me and catch me out. So when I took a lead position and I had to hire, I really wanted to consciously try to do interviews that made people comfortable, that made them feel like they were respected and welcome. Even if, you know, even if you start interviewing someone, you realize, okay, it's not going to be a good fit. You want them to walk away feeling like this was a good experience. So, um, that was one thing. And then another was we really wanted to make sure that, you know, take home things that we had didn't discriminate against people who have a lot of outside responsibilities, maybe like mothers. Um, so what we did was we gave people a choice of a very short take home because some people are very uncomfortable doing, um, you know, examinations or uh, exercises in interviews and we made sure that it like literally took no more than an hour and you know people could also do it within the interview so they really didn't have any time they could do it during the interview time so yeah this was sort of some thoughts that I had coming in that I really wanted to make sure that the interview process felt comfortable for everyone that People felt respected, that they had a choice of doing the interview in a way that made them feel comfortable. And also, you know, like these one week take homes, like I have literally done take homes that have taken me a week. You can't do that if you have like carer duties or big responsibilities outside of work. Yes. Um, so a couple things. One to your first point and just of like this almost adversarial interview style. So I think it was about three podcasts back. I interview with Anita uh, Williams Woolley. She's a professor of organizational and behavioral, again, her favorite word, behavioral um, research. And she's done some really great research on collective intelligence. So like how teams work and how teams work collaboratively. And one of the key findings was that male teams really love like this combative type of working style. And what happens is it allows them to perform better, right? As a whole team. 
for females, right, they really like to work as a collective. And so what happens is when you have a minority of females in a group, there's a combative style because you like the dominant gender is working style as the dominant working style. And it causes them to one, not be able to show their best work, their best performance, and you're not getting everything from the team. But why I found that research interesting was because of what you had just mentioned of like, I've noticed this particular type of interviewing style from all male teams. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting doing some work with a, another colleague of going back just into like our ancestral history, right? And how we used to work in tribes and there were these different roles and how like we may have adapted to like have these different working styles. And I find all this really fascinating, but more so I think like awareness of it is really helpful so that we know like, hey, we want more women in tech. We are an all men panel, right? How do we kind of accommodate and update our styles so that we can get the best from every candidate, right? Because that's really what we're looking to do, whether you're a leader, whether you're a hiring manager, whether you're a teammate and an individual, is you want to get the best from that person. And so I think the more that we can all like dive into this research and understand like the limitations of ourselves, and I think also the limitations of how slow we all evolve. <laughs> I know we like to think we're like these highly evolved species, but unfortunately, we still have like a very primordial brain like left in the encoding of us today. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there, particularly for hiring as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like that whole point that you make about getting the best performance, obviously it's super important when you're talking about when someone's on the job. But I also think that that counts for the interview. So this was sort of what I was trying to get at when talking about making candidates feel comfortable. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a really awful interview. I've had a couple where I bombed it real bad. But part of the reason why I bombed those interviews is because I felt so uncomfortable. I sort of froze and I couldn't perform very well. So I think if you can make a candidate as comfortable as possible, they're going to give you a realistic showcase of what they can do. A hundred percent. I definitely have had interviews that I bombed. I I did one where, you know how they do those like test questions, of, like of c cases that make no sense. It was like, how many TV sets are there in the US, right? And I, it was just, I felt it was very combative. I wasn't prepared for anything like those types of questions. I had to research like, what are people trying to get through? I'm like, they're all just trying to get your thinking process. And I like froze because like, I'm like, I don't even know how many people live in the United States. <laughs> I don't want to put that, right? That sounds like such a basic thing, right? And But I'm like, oh, no, I haven't even thought about this type of question. And so from the get-go, it was just like, oh, this isn't going to go good. And it's, I'm a train wreck from here, right? But, you know, I think we've all been in those situations. I think also talking about it, it helps a lot because then the others are going to relate to, oh, yes, I've definitely done something similar. But there's so many ways we can make people feel more comfortable and more importantly, we have to think about like in our work environment. So when they come into the team, do we want them to continually feel uncomfortable and see how they perform under that? No, we want them to feel comfortable um, so we can see their best self. And that's going to have the truest representation of that person to begin with. 
Yeah. And like, I have been quite lucky in having good managers since I left academia. Um, so to be honest, like it is possible to be friendly and supportive, but still have those boundaries between boss and, and subordinate. And, you know, you don't need to be a jerk to have authority or get good performance. Like if you hire the right people, they'll, they'll want to excel and they will excel if you make them feel like they can take risks and be comfortable. A hundred percent. I'm a millennial. I'm going to guess that you're a millennial as well. And recently I've been seeing on TikTok um, how much like Gen Z's are like, we love our millennial bosses. They're like the nicest mom and dads of things. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that we sound very millennial right now in saying that. But I, I think, you know, again, it's part of the evolution, right? We learn from their prior experiences and hopefully make changes better for the next generation. But um, yeah, I think it is possible. Before, I think there was this kind of understanding that like to be a boss, you really had to have like, you said an open door, but let's be honest, it was really a closed door. And, you know, I have to maintain this era of like status. And a lot of times it came from like this uh, aggression and demanding. And it's like, actually, all the psychology shows that people perform better, do better work and accomplish more when you use positive feedback, which is like mind blowing, right? So, you know, to me, I'm always like, what does the research say, right? There's always like these ideas and we have examples of how we should be as leaders and perform as individuals. But oftentimes I feel like the research doesn't get infused into society enough of like, actually the way we're doing it isn't the best way. And there's a way to update it. And you're going to get a lot more by positive feedback than by negative feedback. So I know you have a um, rich experience in research as well. What's your story? How did you get into data scientists, get into data science, but more importantly, like where'd you start off your career journey? What'd you want to be as a child? Yeah. So um, actually as a kid, I wanted to be a scientist. Um, so millennial, I grew up probably during the heyday of dinosaurs being cool. I still love dinosaurs. I think maybe you can see like a couple in the background for those who uh, see video. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I initially wanted to be a paleontologist, especially after I saw Jurassic Park. Then I realized that most paleontologists have to spend all day out in the sun, especially after I learned about the Gobi Desert. And I was like, no, that's, I'm not about that life. And then sort of throughout my teen years, I just, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was good at writing. I was like, I was good at math, but I wasn't super encouraged in it and um, thought I hated science. And then by chance, I enrolled in psychology when I was at uni, realized I loved science, <laughs> um, ended up completing a, a dual science degree. So my other undergraduate is in um, evolutionary biology and ecology. And yeah, then thought I wanted to be a psychologist, did my PhD in clinical psych. I was licensed as a, a psychologist and kind of my whole thing that made me fall in love with science was actually statistics and research methodology. Like I just, I love, I, I think you understand this, like I love the purity of it. Like it's this idea of if you understand the data well enough, you will learn a truth that maybe no one else knows. And that, that has always been so magic for me. And I feel actually super happy, like super fortunate that 
I've been able to do this my whole career, like data science, I still do the same thing. So yeah, I, I got to the end of my postdoc, um, which was in biostatistics. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I hate writing papers. I cannot be on this grant treadmill forever. And it's not even as competitive in Australia as it is in the States. Like it's, yeah, it's a bit scary. So I took a little bit of time out and then ended up getting my first job in more of a like analytics role. Um, and then, yeah, kind of went through, I think this is my fourth job in industry. Yeah, that's right. So been doing this for about seven years now. And most of my data science career has been in natural language processing, but I've done like a stint in pure machine learning and yeah, obviously advocacy is a bit of a mixed bag. Like you do a bit of everything. Yeah. Um, your love for research, I definitely can relate to. That is what made me switch my major from piano performance to psychology and neuroscience. And my first, the first lab I ever worked in was um, evolution of ecology of fishes. So I worked in a fish lab. And, but I, I, to this day, I still want to just print out the scientific method and hang it on my wall because I think it's so beautiful. I'm like, and I think it really comes down to what you shared as well, which is like this idea that when you follow this method and it's quite like simple steps, right? Very precise, but very clean and simple. And I love that part of it. But if you follow it, yes, you have like this opportunity like to discover something that has never been discovered before. And so there's like this, if you have this rich curiosity, you are obsessed with it and love it. But you're like, there's this framework and I can literally apply it to anything, right? Like, I think what I loved is whether I was working in a biology lab or a neuroscience lab or whatever class I took, they used the same method. And I'm like, where do we find agreement in anything? Here is where we find agreement. Like, it's a very comforting fact. Yes. And it's like, I think a lot of people are surprised. Um, like, I'm sure you've had the same thing. I've had a lot of people ask me, should I do a PhD? And I never tell them yes or no, but I do tell them my PhD was one of the best times of my whole life. And they're like, what? <laughs> but first I had like, I had like a great lab. I had like a good supervisor. Um, he was pretty chill. So as long as I was getting stuff done on time, he wasn't breathing down my neck. And I have never, I think, felt so intellectually challenged in my life. Like it was such a privilege to be able to spend years just delving into something that fascinated me. And um, sometimes I get little like hits of that in the job, but uh, I don't know. My PhD, it was, it was terrible at the end, but most of it was just amazing. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about having so much time to really go deep into a subject. So I know some of my favorite parts of my job are when I like have like a glorious four hours yes. off and to me that's like I have four hours of deep thinking it's amazing I, right whereas in like a PhD you have like four years of deep thinking <laughs> which I think is is challenging because in those in my focus time of I hit some blocks and then it's like so challenging but like at the end of it it's like coming off of a hard workout and you're like oh, it feels so good to like have that richness and like show something that you like put your heart and soul to and that you've completed yeah and um I think those times when I get it in the job is when I learn something new that is just so interesting like I think when I first learned how transformer models work I was like 
This is so cool. Like it's complicated, but it's not that complicated and it's so elegant. Yeah, some of my favorite models are the ones that are like the most simple in some ways, right? And they do have like this elegance to them. Linear regression. You mentioned Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. It's so I, yeah, someone asked me last night, I'm like, which is your favorite algorithm? And I'm like, oh, there's so many. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> it's probably like if I asked you like your favorite dinosaur, you're like, there's so many I have. I love them each oh, for different actually, reasons. Actually, no, it's it's Stegosaurus. <laughs> that's my favorite. Oh, okay. It's so dumb, but so beautiful. I want to go back to your PhD. Hmm. Um, what what was your thesis on this amazing and also challenging time in your life? What was your thesis? On? Okay, so my kind of um, shall I say flippant answer is hurt feelings because technically that is what it's on. Um, what I studied was emotions. Uh, sorry, emotion and relationship psychology. So this is always what I wanted to kind of study. I actually wanted to be a relationship psychologist, and then I realized, oh, that's uh, intense. Um, but uh, yeah, what I was looking at, kind of what led me down this path, was I was looking at the emotional reaction to relationship transgressions. So when you have some sort of breach in a relationship, be it like a minor or a major relationship, like what is the emotional fallout from that? And it turns out it's hurt. Like it's the same feeling that you get if, I don't know, a stranger insults you. It's the exact same emotional response if like an infidelity or a breakup happens in a important romantic relationship so yeah I was just basically looking at the kind of factors that influence the intensity of hurt I went into attachment theory I'm sure you're very familiar with that um, for those in the audience who haven't heard of it it's basically the major theory that you know describes how we make close personal relationships um yeah and that was what I studied um, for those who want to know more about attachment theory, I do recommend the book Attached. It, um, I don't know if you have uh, favorite books in attachment theory, but it's kind of like the mainstream for everyday consumers, I would say, to like get you through your attachment theory. Um, I know all my friends read it and were like, wait, what's your attachment style? What's your attachment style? It was kind of like the latest trends. Instead of telling horoscopes, you know, when you work in psychology, tell somebody your attachment style. Yes. Um, so yeah, read the book and then you'll get everybody on to tell you what their attachment style is here. Yeah. And look, attachment theory is, is one of the most beautiful theories in psychology. So I, I like, I will second this. I haven't read this book, but really everyone should learn about it. I agree. In regards to feeling relationship pain or, or hurt or emotional, is there any research that shows it's similar just as intense or more as intense as like physical pain because i think a lot of times we think of like emotional pain it's like this kind of subcategory but we never know like how it feels for someone whereas someone if like you know they broke their arm like we feel very sorry for them is there any research that shows like actually if you have a breakup that's worse than like being in a terrible car accident and breaking your arms <laughs> That's just a rough example. No, this is this is such a great question. Hence, I like for those watching the video, why I was like, ah, when you asked it. Um, so basically, the neural pathway that regulates the emotional response to physical pain is the exact same one that regulates emotional pain. They're the same response. It's just that physical pain, as you would know, being a neuroscientist, has also like a neural pathway that indicates like physical tissue damage is occurring. So 
basically there's research, like I'm, I'm trying to remember about like 10 years, but there were papers that showed that I think at the time they were emotionally rated the same, but when people tried to remember them, the kind of emotional impact of, you know, relational transgressional events was actually like lingered way, way more than the the memory of the physical pain. So once, you know, the bone had healed, people didn't think about it anymore. But the kind of psychic impact, psychic impact, like psychological impact of, you know, the emotional event was way, way worse and way, way more, more long lasting. I think this is so helpful to know because in our society, I would say we empathize more for physical mm-hmm. pain than we do for emotional pain, at least in Western um, culture. And I think it's so helpful to know that one, they feel the same, but more that the emotional pain lasts longer in our psyche, right? And that to me, I'm just like, this is why we all need therapy. Oh, I know. Right? Like if you break, if you break your arm or your leg, you know, you're going to go to or have surgery, you're going to go to physical therapy. Like we have all of these emotional wounds and we were just walking around wounded. And I'm like, we just make therapy a paid feature <laughs> for everyone because I feel like the world would be a much better place. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's the exact same reaction that people have to um, mental illness versus physical illness. So everyone's going to feel sorry for you if they know that, you know, you've got cold or, you know, something something worse but if you tell people you have depression or anxiety or something like that I think things are a lot better again going back to millennials and gen zetters gen zetters I think are actually pretty good with this but I think for a long time people felt a lot of shame talking about it and it means they don't even recognize when they have mental illness um so yeah it's it's exactly the same but I do think it's getting better yeah, and tying this all back into the workplace and data science. Um, so I recently read a book called Compassionate Business. And um, one of the main components that I, one of the chapters I really loved was like about compassionate firing and compassionate layoffs. And, you know, given just kind of the tech environment over this past year and really all of the economic environment with different rounds of layoff, I don't think that we as employers and employees reserve enough space for the loss that we feel through that process, right? Whether you're laying off someone, that's a terrible experience to go through, whether you're the person being laid off or it's someone who is even on your team, right? And just the loss feel from that because, you know, you mentioned you studied relationships and there's so much more to relationships than just like family relationships and romantic relationships. You know, a large portion of our adult life is spent with our work relationships and those are key to our happiness and success and so you know one of the things I'm looking at a lot is am I giving myself myself and then my team enough space to process changes whether they be as large as a layoff or more like my job is changing and I'm learning new things and how am I feeling and addressing and dealing yeah and like more broadly than I think layoffs, because layoffs I think are kind of maybe the most extreme manifestation of, let's say, workplace conflict of, um, or kind of breaks to those relationships. I would say actually one of the hardest things I've done in my career 
is managing. I don't, I don't know that I was particularly good at it. I will be honest. I thought a long time before I went in and did management and I still don't think I did a great job and I'm not sure that I would do it again. Like it was so hard. Um, and it's a real shame, like going back to, I guess, talking about like engineering, I think that there's sort of a normalization in engineering that someone who is really good technically will eventually become a team lead. And it really doesn't matter whether they have the people skills to do that or not. And like I've definitely seen like people who were ill-equipped to be team leads causing a lot of damage and, and stress and insecurity in their subordinates. Yeah, I would say it is definitely one of the hardest roles that I've ever done. I mean, it's just because of the amount of space that you have to carry. And I learned really, I was very lucky that I had, you know, kind of my own tools for stress relief, but also then my own therapist, my own coach, right? Because I think that's the other side of things too, is um, not only being there for your team and carrying that space, but then like what outlets do you as a leader have for yourself as well during those times, right? Do you have that person you can go to and confide in? Um, do you have the person that holds space for you? Do you have the methods for like, okay, that was a lot for me to process. I need to step back and not be in back-to-back -back meetings, right? Step back is not being in the back to another meeting one after another. Um, so yes, I could not agree more. I think one, it's a much more challenging role. I don't think we have adequate training for it, right? It's like, hey, you were good at this job. So now you can tell other people how to do it, which is not how it works. And be then the support system, you know, in place for the leaders um, as they transition into that new role. So uh, much more to come in that side. Well, this has been a fa fascinating conversation. Uh, definitely, you are someone after my own heart with your love for research and <laughs> neuroscience. And just so impressed with everything you've been able to do in the field of data science science and where you see it going. Um, as we wrap up today, do you have any advice for students or those looking to get into the field? Yeah. So I would say kind of the advice that I tend to give people is firstly, try and focus on what you like. Like, why are you attracted to this? Do you like more engineering? Do you like more of the scientific side? Do you like more of the ops side? Like focus on that first, because that's the most important thing. And then once you've worked that out, just start comparing your skills with job titles. And do you fit more at the moment on the development side or the analyst side? That will be your path in. And, you know, even if you start as an analyst or a data engineer or a developer or whatever, you don't have to stay in those roles. Um, and then probably the final advice I would have is when I first started in this field, like I started being scared of the command line. Like my... My tech skills were basically zero. I had a terrible time emotionally in the first couple of years. Like I was always worried that someone was going to be like, why are you asking this? Like you're fired. Like it was, my imposter syndrome was terrible. Um, just sit with that. Like I think all of us kind of have that starting in any tech field, but I think data science and ML tends to be so hyped up and so it has this reputation of being so overly complicated. Um, don't, don't let it get to you. Like you deserve to be there as much as anyone. So just sit with it and try and find a mentor. And if you can't find someone else to complain to and you'll get through it. 
I love it. That's great advice. Well, Jody, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, this was a really enlightening conversation. If people want to connect with Jody, we will put all of her social profile um, and links in uh, the show notes. She has a great blog post, a GitHub. So, you know, go check that out. Follow her on Twitter. And we will catch you next time on the Databyte Podcast. Thanks again, Jody. And thank you to our listeners. Remember to stay curious and keep learning. And we will catch you next time on the Data Bytes Podcast. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes Podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.